Even men like Talon Card occasionally make mistakes. This is the Chimera. Launch the attack. Time to go to work. You won't let me get killed, will you? Is that what I was supposed to be doing here? I should have brought my lightsaber. Welcome to Star Wars Bookworms, the show where we discuss and review all the new Star Wars releases from Dark Horse Comics and Del Rey Books. I'm your host, Teresa Delgado, and as always, I'm joined here by my co-host, Aaron Goins. Aaron, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Teresa? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, we, I hear we have a special guest that you're going to introduce for yes, us Yes, we, we do have a special guest. Uh, most of our listeners have probably heard of him. Um... We have today on the show from Rebel Force Radio, Jimmy Mack. How are you doing today, Jimmy? Good, good, good. Good to be on with you guys. It's great to have you. We, uh, you're kind of a, I guess you could say, you were podcasting before Star Wars podcasting was cool. <laughs> Has it ever become cool? Yeah. <laughs> you know, most you just think of us as a bunch of uh, dorks sitting in our basement, but, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a lot more than that, and I think that there's a very mystical and powerful message that Star Wars conveys, and I think that has built up a huge, tremendous fan community who like to do things like visit websites and read books about Star Wars and listen to podcasts about Star Wars. So, yeah, I guess it is pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, you you guys are uh, doing Rebel Force Radio. You've been podcasting now for, like, at least Star Wars podcasting for over six years now, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it was uh, 2006 when uh, we started, and um, prior to that, I used to uh, report on Star Wars happenings during the prequel era on uh, Chicago radio stations, so I was pretty much the go-to guy when it came to uh, any Chicago radio personality looking for information about Star Wars, they would get a hold of me, and I would go and hang out at the lines uh, and do reports from them when people were lining up to see the prequel movies in the weeks prior to their opening. And I did um, a radio special, a Star Wars radio special for CBS Radio in 2005. And uh, so, yeah, I've definitely been uh, getting my my hands dirty with the the franchise for uh, quite a long time now. I think um, probably the first time I ever really went out and um, looked for interviews and things of that nature, in a, as far as Star Wars goes, that probably goes back to about 2000, 2001. So, yeah, I've been at it for a little while now. Cool. Well, it's awesome having you on. I've been listening to uh, Forcecast slash Rebel Force Radio ever since the beginning, so... It's kind of uh, it's kind of cool to I've been listening to your voice for a very long time, so it's kind of cool to actually have you on our podcast, uh, since you guys are kind of the ones that I would say kind of started the uh, the whole Star Wars podcasting you know trend. So it's good to have some of the pioneers you know on the show. Yeah, cool, very awesome, happy to be here. All right, well, Teresa, what are we reviewing in today's episode? On today's episode, we are going to be reviewing the much-talked-about Kenobi novel. And just to remind all of our listeners, we do have a spoiler policy. We usually wait about a month, and Kenobi was released back in August, so you've definitely had some time to read it. Um, If you haven't read Kenobi, I would wait and read it and then come and listen to the episode, because we will talk about things in depth, plot lines, and um, most likely, you know, how the book ended up. So if you don't want to know any of that, now's your time to push pause and then come back and check it out when you're ready. Yeah, and I listened to Rebel Force Radio's uh, 
Kenobi review, and I know you guys did a spoiler-free review, right? Well, you know, it wasn't really necessarily our intention to do a spoiler-free review, but it, it just sort of worked out that way. And as we got deeper and deeper into the conversation, I realized that I wanted to leave it that way. I wanted to maintain some of the mystery about the book itself. Um, but, you know, I'm more than happy to, to dig as deep as you guys want to. Oh, definitely. Show because yeah, there are a few stones we left unturned there in our conversation. Yeah, I'm definitely. I like I said, I listened to your guys' review, so I'm definitely interested to hear some of your opinions on some of the more spoiler spoilery things. So we'll get into that later on. Cool. But before we do, I I wanted to just kind of do a quick interview of you. I like to hear how some of the of the more prominent Star Wars fans have gotten into the Star Wars expanded universe. Um, I know you are a fan of the Star Wars expanded universe. Like I said, I've been listening to Rebel Force Radio since the beginning, and you know, to be completely honest with you, there, you know, sometimes your guys' podcast gets kind of a bad rap as being EU haters, right? <laughs> and um, but I know you're not. You know, I know you don't. I don't think that you hate the EU. I know you actually follow it and you know read the books and comics and things like that. So I was just kind of interested to see, you know, or to ask you. How did you initially get interested in reading some of this, you know, comics books as opposed to just watching the movies? Well, just to, to go back a second, as far as our show having a reputation as, as being um, sometimes unfriendly to the expanded universe, um, I think that's fair because we hold Star Wars to such a high standard and there has just been so much coming out of publishing over the course of the last decade that with that sort of output, you just know that there is substandard material being thrown out there. And there are times we might get vocal about it because we believe that if you're going to put that star Wars logo on a book, it better be a damn good book because it needs to meet not only the standards established by the franchise and the history of the franchise itself, but the standards that we apply to it as fans the problem is is that we find that when you're dealing with star wars if there's something that perhaps you may not particularly like it's guaranteed that that's someone's favorite thing about star wars so if we get a little vocal or critical about something happening in an expanded universe uh you're damn sure we're gonna hear about it and we're open to that we we want to hear all sort of uh different feedback because Sometimes when you're critical of something, it takes a little nudge in the right direction to sort of understand where the appeal lies. And, uh, and that's the case with uh, Star Wars Expanded Universe, no question about it, and, and our approach to it, which is cool. Now, as, as far as how I got into it, I mean, what do you guys think, if, if, if you ask this question to a handful of Star Wars fans, what do you think is going to be the most likely answer? I think the most likely answer is going to be the Timothy Zahn novels is right. typically the entry point for most Star Wars Expanded Universe fans. The Thrawn trilogy. There's no question about it. The Thrawn trilogy had a lot to do with rejuvenating my interest in Star Wars, but the main thing that introduced me to the Expanded Universe as far as on a comic book level, it would be Marvel Star Wars issue number seven. When all of a sudden, this was the first time you're seeing new adventures beyond the films. As a matter of fact, I think that was the tagline Marvel used for it. It was like, uh, 
you know, beyond the movie, beyond the universe or so, something crazy like that. And it was just exciting to see, oh, my God, the story does continue. And as uh, it, uh, kids growing up in the 70s and seeing Star Wars during its initial run, we had hoped there was going to be a sequel. We had assumed that there were more stories to tell. And so when we saw this Marvel comic expanding the story beyond the end of the Battle of Yavin and the award ceremony, and then there you are. You have Han and Luke and Leia and Chewie, and they're separating, going in different directions. Han and Chewie leaving the Yavin base and going off on their own adventure. And that, to me, was the coolest thing in the world. So that would probably be it. I remember the day I saw that comic book. I was going on a family vacation. I was at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And remember, uh, the comics used to be on those metal racks that would spin. Yep. And they had three packs. They had, you could buy three comics in this one plastic-wrapped pack. And they had Star Wars 7, 8, and 9 in there. I'm not talking episodes. I'm talking issues. This was the, the, the first expansion of the story beyond the films. And it was Marvel Comics that did it. And uh, I, I just recall sitting there paging through that great Carmen Infantino artwork. And, and, and uh, Howard Shaken wrote this stuff. And I just was, was so fascinated with it and so excited to know that the saga was much bigger than what we just saw in that initial film. The way I I assumed that it was happening as a kid, and this is kind of interesting, is that I actually saw the novel of Star Wars on my school shelf in late 1976, early 77, before the film even opened. And it had original Ralph McQuarrie artwork on it. And... It, you know, there was a little blurb on the back that said, you know, coming soon from 20th Century Fox, major motion picture space adventure and all this stuff. I still have that book. And um, and the reason I have it is because I did, <clears throat> excuse me, I did borrow it from my school library, but I never returned it. I still have it. <laughs> Very nice. After all these years, I still have it. And I don't really think I really read the book before I saw the film, I don't think there was any spoilers going on there, but I was aware of it. You know, I just, I had this awareness. I tried to read it, but as an eight year old, it wasn't the easiest thing to read. But then after I saw the movie, I couldn't wait to read it. And, and so that's when I actually did sink my teeth into it. And I found that there were scenes in the book that didn't make it into the film. The, the big scenes at the beginning and Anchorhead. They didn't make the film. And there were all these other little things going on there, too. So that's kind of really, you know, expanded universe happening right then and there with the initial novelization. And on the cover, it said, from the adventures of Luke Skywalker. So that got me thinking. There must be so much more if if this is just one story from a whole collection the adventures of Luke Skywalker. So I would seek out the adventures of Luke Skywalker and I'll be damned. I couldn't find them anywhere. There were, you know, I, I thought that maybe it was this, this long sprawling tale that was told over volumes and volumes of pre-existing books that they are finally making into films. And so I, I would look for these adventures of Luke Skywalker and couldn't find them for years until here I am back in the same school library 
1978, and they have a hardcover copy of Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And, of course, the talk on the playground was, oh, that book, that's going to be Star Wars 2. And so we read that, that novel assuming that that's what Empire Strikes Back would eventually, you know, would be, was, was, was Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And, um, and you know, what's, what's cool is that I think there's going to be a lot of new information about Splinter coming to the surface because Star Wars Insider is going to do a really cool behind-the-scenes look at that book. And they're going to reveal a lot of things about what George was thinking because George actually came up with that story, gave it to Alan Dean Foster and said, make this into a book. This will be my sequel. If, it's, if, if Star Wars isn't going to be a big hit, Splinter, Minds, Splinter of the Mind's Eye was going to be the sequel because George was assuming it could be made into a TV movie. Um, there was wow. on Solo in it because Harrison Ford was not signed to a sequel. So um, there's, there's some actual fact behind that notion we had as kids that this was going to be Star Wars 2, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. So I read it, loved it, and um, looking back on it, it, it's certainly not the greatest Star Wars story ever told. And there's uh, many moments in there that are way outside canon. But you have plot devices that George was coming up in his head when he was writing the drafts for Star Wars. Things like the Kyber Crystal. That was a, a big plot device in some of the early drafts for Star Wars. And, uh, and that led me on to the, uh, then the Brian Daly books started coming out in the late 70s. And I, I read those and... Love the radio dramas. And that's the expanded universe at this time, along with the ongoing Marvel comics. There was the newspaper strip, which came out after Empire Strikes Back. But it was confusing because the newspaper strip was, they were adventures taking place between episode four and episode five. But episode five had just come and gone out of the theaters. So you were expecting it to build onto that, but yet it was taking you back and filling in those years between the first two episodes. So it was, it was kind of confusing. And I think it was in um, the, the Chicago Sun-Times here in town. And my dad subscribed to the Chicago Tribune. So I didn't get to see the, the comic strip as it played out in the pages of the, uh, of the newspapers. And, you know, I, I eventually got caught up on those in the nineties when dark horse released them as collections, but, um, that's it. That's it with your expanded universe. Yeah. I couldn't imagine trying to get into those type of things back when you were doing it. I didn't really get into the star Wars expanded universe until kind of the late, late nineties. Um, and so I had the internet, you know, I had at least, you know, computers at the library that I could go and search for the books and stuff. But it sounds like you had to do a lot more work to kind of figure out what was out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was no announcement. You know, like I said, you would just find this stuff on the the bookshelves. You know, the Lando Calrissian trilogy came out in the 80s. And uh, that one I didn't like. I still don't like that one to this day. Um, just, I, I can't sit through it. It's just the way it's written. Uh, it's, uh, it, it just never appealed to me. Um, but I did love the, the, the Brian Daly trilogy of Han Solo adventures. And I've read those a couple of times. Um, 
probably then once you get beyond the novelizations, the Marvel comics, the newspaper strips, the next big thing to happen happened during the dark times of Star Wars. And that would be around, you know, 87, 88. Nothing was happening with Star Wars, but those West End games source books came out. And this to me is where you really see the true birth of the expanded universe as an organized whole is with the release of those early source books from West End Games. Now, I wasn't a gamer. I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons. I never rolled one of those funky-looking dies or anything like that. But when I saw this Star Wars book, it was uh, the year Star Tours had opened in Orlando. And I was there with my family and went on the ride came out went into the Tatooine trader gift shop and there it was on the bookshelves of course i had no indication that these books even existed but i grabbed it and i started paging through it and i said oh my god this is all the information i've always wanted to know about star wars everything from blueprints to the millennium falcon to identification of all the cantina aliens and what races they were and a hammerhead is called an Ithorian, and it, it, it just was, like, mind-blowing, earth-shattering. And I read that book a thousand times and tried to seek out, <clears throat> excuse me, tried to seek out other editions of the West End Games books. Um, and I wasn't very good at it. I didn't know where to go shopping for that kind of thing. I would go to, like, Walden Books, and they might have one or two in the back, um, but that would just be luck. So uh, that's really where it all began, though, is, is, and it's during those dark times. And then uh, I saw a blurb in the paper, it was probably around 1990, about finally Lucasfilm has decided to carry on with the Star Wars story in book form. And Timothy Zahn would be coming out with Heir to the Empire, and it was, uh, you know, going to be released. Uh, you know, this probably a, a year prior to the actual release of the book when I, I read about it in the paper, and so I had heard the book had come out, and I went uh, to uh, like a a Crown bookstore or something like that, and uh, I asked for the book, and I said I'm looking for Heir to the Empire, and they're like, what is that? What is that? And I said it's the new Star Wars book, and they're like, oh, that's a New York Times bestseller. And I'm like, you're kidding me. So they take me up to the wall, and there it is up on the wall with, you know, all these all these books that I'd recognize as being massive major sellers at the time, and, and there's a Star Wars book. And I read that book. Oh, God, it probably took me three days to read it. And, I, I mean, it just took my time, and I thought it was brilliant. And I was hearing the Star Wars music as I read the pages of the book. I said, yes, this is awesome. This is great. I want, I want to be in, I want, I want more of this. I definitely want more of this. So the Zahn trilogy happened. And then some other books started coming out like uh, Truce at Bakura and Crystal Star. And then now, now I'm starting to feel a little deflated because here we go. We're starting to get into something that I would consider to be very substandard level of Star Wars storytelling. And I knew from that, that time that these books are going to be hit or miss. I'm going to love some of them and some of them I'm not going to, I'll be lucky to make it all the way through. Um, 
yeah, I had a real hangup about that at that point because it, there were certain novels that were not following the rhythm that I felt was essential to Star Wars storytelling. By the time it got to the Black Fleet Crisis, it, it, that was three books of nonsense. It was, it was, uh, the second book was, was Lobot walking around in a ship. I, I mean, that's all it was. It was, you know, no lightsaber action. It was, it was uh, Luke looking for this mother that didn't exist and all this crazy stuff. And so, um, you know, that's when, when I really started to develop a, um, a, a taste for what I would consider to be Star, excuse me, Star Wars done right and Star Wars done wrong. And, uh, and so that's, you know, the journey has just continued. And I, I try to read every book um, over the course of maybe the last five to seven years. Uh, my completionist attitude toward reading everything has sort of failed me a little bit because I found it's just impossible to keep up. But I'd still say I'm somewhere around the 75% range as far as reading every expanded universe book that's been released. Yeah, I think that's probably where where I'm at too. I have I actually have never read the Marvel stuff and I haven't read like the X-Wing novels. So there's there's a number of things I haven't read either. But um I actually like the Black Fleet Crisis books. Oh. I think because I read them very early on in my, you know, EU fandom, so I was just eating up anything that, you know, anything that was Star Wars. So to me they were just new stories about Luke Skywalker. So I was eating it up. Um Kind of like I didn't know any better at that point. Yeah, maybe in retrospect, they're they're better books than I recall them being. But at that point, even then, I was like, "Wow, they're starting to stretch the the characters and situations a little thin." In my my yeah. uh, my appreciation, and and also the fact is that uh, you know you'd read a book and you go, "Well, this would make a good Star Trek book," but I don't know if it make a good Star Wars book. So you know, and that's that's a, a criteria I still use to this day. Um, even reading a, a book like Razor's Edge, the new one, um, I'm like, ooh, they're getting a little trekky here now, you know, we're yeah, on a bridge of a ship and, you know, so, but, you know, I try to be patient. I try to be open-minded and, you know, at the end of the day, it's just entertainment. And if you're entertained, you're entertained. If you're not, you're not. Well, um, with these, with these new movies coming out, um, a lot of Expanded Universe fans are really curious to see kind of how, how that's all going to pan out. Do you have any opinions as far as like how you would like to see it go, like as far as a f- like a full reboot as opposed to maybe trying to actually fit some elements into the movies? Do you have a preference? Well, just knowing what I know, um, I believe that if we're going to see anything from the expanded universe included in the new films, it will be like of an Easter egg sort of variety. And I think it'll be something coming more from the design group than from the storytellers themselves, guys like J.J. Abrams, Michael Arntz, Simon Kimberg, etc. I don't think those guys are going to be bringing in any characters from the expanded universe. I think on the design end of things, we might get something like a ship design or some other sort of little nods to the EU, similar to what you saw them do with uh, the Clone Wars. But I don't, I don't really think, I don't think they're going to even take it as far as the Clone Wars did, as far as um, introducing expanded universe characters or situations. So no Jaina Solo, no Ben Skywalker type of thing? No, no. I don't think there's a chance that that's going to happen. 
as far I as... I actually agree with that, though. I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, I love the expanded universe and all the characters and everything, but I really just want to see something different that I know nothing about. And uh, so I'm excited, if that's the case. I'm so, like... I'm kind of like the diehard, maybe what what Jason might call the kook, but I I would love to see a Jaina Solo in the movies. I'm not expecting her to be the character that we have come to love in the novels, but even if there was a character just named Jaina Solo or even a character named Ben Skywalker or something like that, I would love it. I think it would be awesome, but I'm not expecting it, and I'm fully prepared for it to be a completely new you know, new story, completely clean slate, which I'm excited about that possibility as well. Yeah, I don't know, you know, even to consider offspring of like Han Solo or Luke Skywalker to be to be a part of this. I, I think we are going to see a next generation of Jedi, but I think that whose offspring it actually is, it'll be a very interesting and surprising source. Something that, you know, you, you probably would never, ever guess. I, I think it's going to be really outside the box. And uh, something that's probably going to shock Star Wars fans to the core. And that's what I'm, I'm really excited about because I don't want them to take any safe routes here. Uh, this is truly the first time we're going to be seeing Star Wars venture into uncharted territory. Because, of course, when you think about the way the sequels played out with the original trilogy, you kind of had an idea where it was going at all times. And at least you knew who the key players were going to be. With the prequel era, you knew that they had to fill in the blanks that would lead up to that original trilogy era. So you had an idea of where things were going to end up. Now, with the sequel trilogy, you have no idea who the protagonist is going to be, who the antagonist is going to be, who the main characters are going to be, you know, <clears throat> what their motivation is going to be. It's, it's going to be a whole new world. And I like that. I don't want them to take a safe route. Cool. Well, Jimmy, I had a question for you because my entrance into the EU is all about um, the Old Republic. That's how I got into it, was actually reading the Bane novels and things like that. And I did read comics beforehand, but I'm relatively new. So do you like the Old Republic era, or would you rather stick to post-Return of the Jedi stuff? I got to tell you, I tried. I did try <laughs> Old Republic, but I just felt it was so far away from the core. Um and I thought it was dealing with archetypes from the original Star Wars trilogy. And when I break that all down, I just say, well, you know what? I'm more comfortable in the era that I'm comfortable in with Star Wars. Um, the only time that I really enjoyed something outside of the, the main era that we're used to seeing in the films is the Tales of the Jedi comic that came out in Dark Horse from the 90s. Came out from Dark Horse in the 90s. Kevin J. Anderson wrote those. And I, I really enjoyed the artwork in those. I enjoyed the characters. And I enjoyed the story. But that's probably the only time I ever got into like that, that era of ancient Star Wars, if you will. Yeah, those were great comics. That was actually some of the first stuff that I read, along with the Dark Empire comics. Some of the first Dark Horse stuff that was out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a real treat. Yeah. Thanks for uh, sharing that information with us. We, you know, we kind of like to get to know, you know, other fans and just see where their EU fandom is at. So it's very, it's interesting to hear hear your side of things. Yeah, I'm kind of old school, um, but I'm open minded. I'm very open minded, and and my um, my opinion has always been, hey, you know, the more Star Wars, the merrier. Well, 
speaking of Star Wars books, we actually have a Star Wars books event that's coming up this Saturday um, for Star Wars Reads Day. And a, a bunch of libraries and bookstores across the nation are actually, you know, hosting these events where uh, parents can bring their kids and, you know, meet some Star Wars authors and, you know, see some stormtroopers, get some face painting done and stuff like that. And I'm actually going to go to one this year. They have one close to my house. Um, and Joe Schreiber, the author Joe Schreiber, who did uh, Death Troopers, is actually going to be there. So, so I'm lucky enough to be close to one that actually has a Star Wars author. Are you guys going to be attending these events in your area? Do you have any plans for that this Saturday? If I was back home in Austin, Texas, where I should be, um, I would be, just like I did last year. But here in Tampa, there doesn't appear to be anything that I can see, so I guess not. Not willing to drive to Orlando. Well, you know, I go to Orlando all the time, so maybe I should. What about you, Jimmy? Anything in the Chicago area? No, not that I'm aware of, no. Cool. All right, well... Um, and also another event that's coming up that actually has a lot of Star Wars stuff going on is New York Comic Con. It's happening October 10th through the 13th. Um, and we'll just kind of run through real quick here uh, just some of the cool stuff that's going on up there. So if any of you listeners are in the Northeast or even if you're you know, willing to travel to New York City, New York Comic Con is one of, the, one of the conventions that's actually really starting to get really big. Um, Star Wars actually has a pretty good presence there this year. But some of the things that are going on, Dark Horse, Pan- Dark Horse Comics is having a panel there uh, where they'll be, be talking about Star Wars stuff. A number of uh, Star Wars authors are going to be there. John Jackson Miller, Drew Karpishan, J.W. Rensler. Um, I talked to Arish Sh- Shonavice, uh yesterday, and he said that they don't have specific times yet for autograph uh, stuff, but they're going to be re- releasing those times hopefully this week uh, so you can... Get, get your books together and, you know, go up to New York Comic Con and get them signed by some of your favorite authors. Um, but I think the big, kind of the big panel that StarWars.com has been pushing is the Star Wars Rebels panel that's going to be happening. Uh, it's actually going to be hosted by Pablo Hidalgo. And I think that's, that's the one where apparently they're going to be giving us some cool new information. So I'm really excited about that. That's happening Saturday, October 12th between 2.45 and 3.45 at New York Comic Con. So if anybody's in the area... Even if you just get a Saturday ticket, that might be a panel that would be great to check out. Jimmy, have you ever been to New York Comic Con? No, I haven't. I have not been there. And uh, this, this seems like a good year to go, that's for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good convention. Like, I've, I've only been there once before. I went there last year. And I think it's kind of becoming the next best thing if you can't get to San Diego Comic Con. Um, a lot more of a media presence there. And I know, you know, Star Wars... It tends to have, you know, at least something going on. I know this year they have a lot. Even Anthony Daniels is going to be there. Um, they have a Making of the Return of the Jedi panel. And like I said, the Rebels panel. So hopefully we get some cool info out of there. I think, Jimmy, you probably have some contacts. You might already know some of the stuff that we're going to be finding out. But but I'm really excited about it. My yes. lips are sealed. Your lips are sealed. <laughs> All right. And the one panel I want to point out is the end bullying panel that's going to have Ashley Eckstein and Bonnie Burton on it. I just think it's important to note that there is going to be more work being done by Star Wars fans and Star Wars fangirls to help in the bullying that's happening out there. So, Yeah, and that's cool that Ashley's going to be there again. I actually met her last year. Um, I was dressed up as doc- the doctor from Doctor Who, and she was dressed up as a zombie. So we got we got a picture together. It was her as a zombie, me as Doctor, but but it was pretty cool to meet her. She's an awesome person. I, I, we've heard her on all the podcasts, and she's really nice. 
but even in person, face to face, she's just so nice and so genuine. So oh, yeah, she's one of the best. No yeah, definitely. Yeah. But let's. Uh, I know we're we're trying to 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 uh, make this a bit of a shorter episode, so we're gonna go ahead and jump right into our review of Kenobi. And Teresa, could you go ahead and uh, read through the stats for us? Sure. So, Star Wars Kenobi was released on August 27th of 2013. The timeline places it about 19 years before the Battle of Yavin, sometime soon after the events of Revenge of the Sith. And the publisher's summary is as follows. Tatooine, a harsh desert world where farmers toil in the heat of two suns while trying to protect themselves and their loved ones from the marauding Tusken Raiders. A backwater planet on the edge of civilized space and an unlikely place to find a Jedi Master in hiding, or an orphaned infant boy on whose tiny shoulders rests the future of a galaxy. Known to locals only as Ben, the bearded and robed off-worlder is an enigmatic stranger who keeps to himself, shares nothing of his past, and goes to great pains to remain an outsider. But as tensions escalate between the farmers and a tribe of sand people led by a ruthless war chief, Ben finds himself drawn into the fight, endangering the very mission that brought him to Tatooine. Ben, the Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi, hero of the Clone Wars, traitor to the Empire, and protector of the galaxy's last hope, can no more turn his back on evil than he can reject his Jedi training. And when blood is unjustly spilled, innocent lives threatened, and a ruthless opponent unmasked, Ben has no choice but to call on the wisdom of the Jedi and the formidable power of the Force in his never-ending fight for justice. Bravo! I, don't I think... did that one well. <laughs> I don't think you. I don't think you missed a beat on that. That was a good job, Teresa. That was good. That was good. <laughs> All right. So, kind of what I wanted to start out with this conversation is just kind of talking about our expectations of what what we kind of thought this novel would be, and and um, you know if we did if it ended up being what we expected it to be. I know when I first heard it announced, it actually was announced at New York Comic Con last year was when they first announced it. And, like, they they put the picture up on the screen with the big, bold letters, Kenobi, and I was just like, yes, this is awesome. Like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi is my favorite prequel-era character, hands down. I just love that character. So I was super excited for a book all about him. But I think as I started reading the book, I realized the book wasn't what I thought it was going to be as far as being kind of more focused on Obi-Wan, it actually was more focused on the characters around him. And it kind of, it didn't take away from the book for me because I really did love the book, but it was just so different than what I kind of had built up in my head. Um, did you guys have any, like, that type of a, a reaction to the novel, or, or were you expecting what you got? No, absolutely I did. As a matter of fact, I always have that expectation with any of these Star Wars books. I mean, if you remember the, uh, the novel Dark Lord... Um, yeah, great novel. You know, of course, it's supposed to be all about Vader, but really, it's it's about these other rogue Jedi that are being hunted down by Vader at the time when he is just becoming accustomed with his new identity, his new lifestyle, his his new his new purpose. You know, and um, and I, I I was disappointed in that. I wanted just to read about Darth Vader. When it came time for the 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 Darth Sidious book, or I'm sorry, Darth Plagueis. Might as well have been a Darth Sidious it book. Might as well right. Have been, right? It might as well have been. Um, but the great thing about that is that I really wanted to learn about those characters, Plagueis and Sidious, and that book didn't let me down. I thought very early on, Plagueis gets picked up 
by a group of pirates in a freighter. Sound familiar? And, uh, and he hitches a ride with them. And I was like, oh, great. It's going to be all about this, this crew on this ship, and it's going to lose its focus. And then right away, he kills them. And I was like, yes! <laughs> Get them out of the way and just focus on these characters that we wanted to, to spend more time with. Now, when it comes to Kenobi, I had those fears in the first few chapters especially. Because you get introduced to Obi-Wan as he first arrives on Tatooine. And then you go about 50 pages reading nothing about uh, Kenobi at all. You're, you're reading about shop owner, uh, life on the, the, in, in the, the, the wilderness out there and, uh, and everything. And, and I didn't mind that so much because being the original trilogy fan I am, the the culture and lifestyle of the moisture farmers on Tatooine is something that appeals to me as far as reading fiction and things like that because essentially what it does is, is it sets up the lifestyle of Luke Skywalker. So you can even get to know a little bit more about his character by reading a book that doesn't feature him in it at all. You know, he's just a baby at this time. And um, yet you, you get to be exposed to the culture and lifestyle of these farmers, settlers. And I think that's really cool, too, because, like I said, it expands upon what you believe you, you know about what lifestyle is on that arid wasteland of a planet. But also, it helps you sort of gain a perspective on what a normal life on that planet would be like. So when a wild and crazy character like Ben Kenobi comes walking into town, you're really seeing him through their eyes and their observations sum up a lot of the crazy crap that Ben has been going through at that time. You're, you're getting their perspective on it, which in turn, for me at least, enlightens your knowledge of what that character is all about during that particular time. What did you think, Teresa? Did you have any expectations for the book? I kind of had the same expectations as you, that I was hoping it was going to be a story completely about Obi-Wan and learning all about, you know, just stuff focused on him. However, I'm kind of like Jimmy in the sense that I actually liked reading about some of the background things and the culture of Tatooine and all of that other stuff because that, as a topic, interests me. Um, one thing that I've learned reading the EU about myself is that I like anything that kind of involves history or background and theory is something that I really like to read. So I think that's why I'm such a big fan of the Old Republic, you know. Um, so I'm kind of with both of you. It didn't necessarily, the book didn't disappoint me at all. It was just something that I had to get used to really quick. Yeah, and kind of speaking of the the, the planet of Tatooine, like you guys both brought up, uh, we learned a lot about it. Um, and they didn't make any secret that they were kind of selling this as, uh, you know, Star Wars as a Western. And which seems like a kind of a common trend right now with Star Wars. They they are doing a lot of theme theme stuff right now. And we kind of talked about it in our last episode because we reviewed the the uh, Agent of the Empire comics and we were talking about the uh, Jean Cross character who he's kind of basically, he's James Bond in Star Wars. So now we have another 
thing where it's Star Wars as a Western. How did you guys feel about that? Was it too spot on? Did we have our you know our cowboys and Indians kind of thing that's that was almost too much of a of an homage to the Western, or did it work for you guys? Well, I think that the sort of space Western uh, trend in Star Wars was established way back in 1977. There's no question about it that those sort of archetypes were already in play in the original Star Wars film. Um, you know, you you have the, the, the settlers and you have the Native American Indians, a.k.a. the Tuscan Raiders. The settlers, of course, would be the moisture farmers. And they're both battling their environment as well as each other. Um, so I don't think this, that that's necessarily a new premise for Star Wars at all. It's something that's always been there as far as I'm concerned. The first half of Episode Four is definitely fitting that space western motif. You know, I mean, even down to, you know, the good old boys riding into town and visiting the saloon, you know, that happened in Star Wars. And um, so I think I think it's welcome. I think it's something that's been kind of ignored over the last 30 some odd years. I think it's something that we should embrace as Star Wars fans is the fact that, yes, it can have that crossover appeal as a, a space Western. So I think it's more or less going back to the roots of what really makes Star Wars tick. I don't think there's anything new about it. Yeah, and it's definitely much more of a grounded story than what we've been getting recently from the Expanded Universe. I don't know if you read Crucible, Jimmy, but it's <laughs> that book was so different than anything you've ever seen in a Star Wars movie that it was kind of a, bre a breath of fresh air to get something like Kenobi where it literally... You know, it could have been just another Star Wars movie. There, there was nothing in that novel that didn't fit into the Star Wars universe. Um, so that was definitely a breath of fresh air. Yeah, and I'm, I feel the same way because even though I liked Crucible, it was still a little bit out there. And it's almost as if Star Wars novels have started to become something that is really fabricated and over-imaginative. You know, things that you can't actually really picture happening and the one thing I've always loved about Star Wars is that it's so real and grounded down to earth in real stories you could take out you know some of the space related stuff and it could be something that would happen in real life here on planet earth and so Kenobi sort of did that for me especially with that whole western theme behind it 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 brought it back down to a realistic level of Star Wars and back to basics and the things that really hit home for a lot of us when it comes to Star Wars. Yeah, it was definitely much more of a character story. Um, you know, the the galaxy wasn't in peril. You know, like, whatever was going to happen in this story wasn't going to really affect anything outside of Tatooine. And it was kind of nice to get that kind of a story. And the characters that we, you know, we had to get uh, get to know a brand new cast of characters that we have never heard of any of these people other than Obi-Wan. They didn't even give us, you know, any kind of a Lars characters. Jabba the Hutt didn't make an appearance. The characters that we would expect to see on Tatooine, we didn't get any of that. Which I think maybe for some readers that was, you know, maybe a little bit of a surprise. But it was interesting to kind of get to know this whole new cast of characters in the Caldwells and the Galts, you know, and those characters... And I guess the main character you could say is was definitely Annalene. 
You know, she, I think, in my opinion at least, was more of the main character of the story uh, than Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah, without question, because the story is essentially being told from her perspective. Um, she is the one who is the eyes and the ears of that shop and that area. She knows everything that's going on. And so when one little out-of-place out of thing happens, like crazy old Ben coming into town, that raises eyebrows. And so she is naturally the one who is going to be investigating and poking around and trying to learn more about this guy. And as it turns out, I mean, they're, they almost let their relationship evolve into a romance. Almost. <laughs> almost. almost. She wanted it. Definitely. And I think he wanted it a little bit too. But see, that's what's great about this book. It really represents the challenge that was facing Obi-Wan as he began his life in exile. Not once in the book does he face the threat of being discovered by Imperial stormtroopers or anything associated with the Empire or the Sith for that matter. He is just trying to survive and keep himself off the radar of anyone that's around him. And so, I mean, that's an incredible challenge because, sure, while we know who the big bad guys are, to him, living this life in, you know, self-imposed exile, being a wanted man, a fugitive, uh, someone whose life is constantly in danger should he be discovered, it's hard to just be himself anywhere at any time. He has to be on guard at all times. Everyone is the enemy for him. And that's something that that's very difficult for him to come to terms with because being a Jedi, he has always been taught to display compassion. Um, and he can't. He just he, he, he wants to. He wants to be the cavalry riding in, and he does several times in this book. He saves the day. He realizes, though, he can't keep letting that happen. So it's a constant battle against anyone and everyone he comes up against. And that's why he gains the reputation as crazy old Ben. Because in everyone else's eyes, as, as he's trying to avoid society, that's what makes him weird. And, uh, and, and I like that. I, I like that spotlight being shown on him and and the difficulty of his existence being exposed to where even just going into the store to pick up feed for his, his pack animal is a, a challenge. You know, he's faced with nonstop challenges and threats to his very existence. Should he be discovered? Were either of you surprised that the main character quote unquote ended up being a female since it's, I mean, with it being written by John Jackson Miller, and one of the things that we've seen with a lot of his work is he tends to highlight female characters. So were you guys surprised when that happened? You know, I, I got to be honest with you. I didn't even give it a second thought. I didn't even give it a second thought. Um, I, I enjoyed all the characters very much. Um, and I enjoyed Ben's interaction with them and all those awkward moments that, helped establish his reputation as crazy old Ben. Um, I never thought for a second, you know, um, about 
the gender of the people he was coming across. Other well, with Annalene, of course, you know there was that understated romantic tension between the two of them, which uh, you know, of course, is 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 something that I think added a a, a different dimension to the book. And it just seems like that's how it is with Obi-Wan. You know, he's kind of a player. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he really is. Um, you know, when it comes to being a Jedi, he, uh, he certainly is more of a, your sort of suave ladies' man kind of uh, Jedi knight. And he can't avoid it. And it seems like, you know, trouble has a way of finding him, too. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. He he sort of laments that during one of his meditation sequences where he's trying to reach out to Qui-Gon. He sort of laments the fact that as much as he tries to avoid controversy, conflict, and things of that nature, just trouble seems to find him. And, uh, and uh, you know, what better way to embody trouble for a celibate Jedi Knight on the run than have it in a... In a in the female form, you know. <laughs> something. So um so yeah, I mean that's a, a cool dimension to the story, and uh, and uh, and I thought Annalene was a strong character, and I think that there was a lot of depth to her character. There was history to her character. You wanted to know more about her. You wanted to know what her life was when she was uh, with her husband uh, Danner, and when he was alive. You know, what was what kind of woman was she then? Was she as driven as was she as focused was she as um as much in control uh i i i don't think so i think you would be dealing with a very different annaline going back into her early years and i think what we've seen what we're seeing on the pages of this book is a character that has been really roughed up a little bit um she's uh she's got a thick layer of skin and uh the reason is is because she's had a history and that's what's compelling always to me about Star Wars stories is when you have that sense of history with your characters, um, you, you get a feeling like they've been going through this stuff for a long time. And that, to me, makes them deeper and, um, and just more compelling. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the character of Annalene. She was definitely by far the most interesting character in the novel. Um, and I thought, you know, J- John Jackson Miller wrote that character great. Um, and I actually, I felt really bad for her the way things ended up because I felt like Obi-Wan could have done a little bit better to telegraph his feelings, like that he wasn't interested because it almost seemed like he was leading her on a little bit. And then at the very end, when he kind of sends her off and she was completely under the impression that he was coming with her, it was almost like, man, there had to be a better way for him to do this. <laughs> For her not to have a completely broken heart at the end. So I, I, I thought it was kind of sad the way things ended up for her. Well, see, I mean, you know, and it is Ben's fault because he never came up with a good cover story. You know, <laughs> he just he's, he's such a good guy. He can't throw around the BS at all. I, I kept thinking all along, why doesn't he just tell him uh, that he's a scientist and he's out there studying the way the stars move in the sky or some kind of crazy junk or even go as far as telling them that he's a religious man and he's out there to, to, you know, live alone to, to find himself, you know, as, as far as what his place is in the universe. And, you know, like a, like a monk, sort of like how the Jedi were presented in the prequels. Um, You know, it was just, 
I was aching for him to come up with just some sort of cover story, but the Ben Kenobi in the pages of this book just felt like uh, less is more. <laughs> Let's just, you know, keep, always keep them guessing. Don't paint yourself in a corner. Don't, uh, you know, fall into a trap of lies where you'll eventually be exposed. Just maintain the mystery. Um, but I just felt with these people, he should have come up with some sort of cover story. I don't know what it could have been. but I think that would have been cool, but I think one of the things I like about it is the mystery and also just the the ambiguous nature of it. And it made it really real because, you know, in real life, you're going to sometimes run into a guy that's going to have cover stories and all this stuff and you end up catching them and all these lies. And then it, you'll have another guy that just doesn't really tell you anything so you kind of are always questioning things, and I sort of feel like that's how Annaline was. And so she sort of created her own reality of what things would be like. And to me, it just resonated as a real-life relationship possibility that could happen. And I like the realism of this book, because I keep saying that over and over, but I really did. This, the themes were there for me. So what did you guys think about the Tuscan Raiders in this novel? I, for for me, I always thought the Tuscan Raiders were more, I don't know, like, I just didn't feel like that they acted the way humans act. Like, they were almost more animal than they were human. And in this book, they definitely, you know, give them much more of a human nature than I've ever seen them have before. Um, did that surprise you guys? Well, it certainly surprised me because I had always really banked on the the, the fact that and I believed that the, the the moisture farmers were right when they, they considered them to be mindless, vicious animals, you know. Uh, but we do have that scene where Anakin goes to the camp in episode two. And you see that they do have a, a social structure. They have families. They have wives and children. And... They live in tents, and so that just tells you that there's a certain level of intelligence going on there, um, that they are actually individuals who can think for themselves, much like how early settlers in the United States considered Native American Indians to be mindless, vicious animals, you know? Um, I mean, they, they were watching these humans hunt down buffalo and tear their hearts out and bite into them. If you believe, uh, what's that <laughs> dances with wolves. <laughs> That's like where most of my education comes from is from dances with wolves. But, um, but that's just, you know, that's the, the, the bias, that's the prejudice against the savages as they were known. And I see a very similar thing happening here with the moisture farmers on Tatooine. We've always seen the sand people through their perspective and understood these, these, these nomads through, through the perspective of those, those farmers who are constantly under threat by these guys. I mean, it's just, you know, <clears throat> talk about a case of different strokes for different folks. That's what's going on, on on Tatooine. And you have to assume that the sand people were there first. And when humans started to populate Tatooine, 
that threw a wrench into the 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 living structure of of these people you know um it 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 turned everything upside down so they had to come to terms with that um i never want to see tuscan raiders being compassionate i'm still at odds with the old dark horse comic uh when uh kiati mundi brought he, he found a jedi knight who lived among the Tuscan Raiders. I always just thought that that was, that was incredibly insane. Um, and it's, it's taken me all this time to even come to terms with that. And I think through the pages of this book, they've, they've expanded on what we know about Tuscan Raiders and made them seem a little more human. And uh, I can appreciate that. I can honestly appreciate that, but I never want to see them turning a corner, you know, and becoming civilized and becoming a society that can exist among human, you know, it's, they have to maintain their integrity and be the people who they are, be the, be the, uh, the, the, the race of people that they are, you know, they, they can't ever lose that. And I was fearing in the pages of this book, when Ben is communicating with the Tuscan Raiders. I'm like, ooh, now we're taking it too far. Now it's gone too far. Nobody should be able to communicate with them because that is, is the, 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 the idea of communicating with the Tuscan Raider means that that could lead to some sort of resolution to their conflict. Communication leads to um, compromise. And I didn't want Tuscans speaking the same language as humans ever. I want I always want to see that division there. I don't want to ever think that there's a chance that there could be a way to bring these two types of people together. You know, the Tuscans have to stay the Tuscans. They can never evolve to become as civilized as humans on Tatooine are. And yeah. so and so I was afraid that with Obi-Wan communicating with the Tuscan leader and everything, it was going to head into that direction. And I was thankful that Miller took us that far, but pulled back then, you know, and let the Tuscan Raiders be true to who they really are and ensured us that that conflict will remain. Yeah. And I thought it was good how he explained in the novel, how they, how she did learn to speak to the humans because, you know, the explanation was that they, you know, would kidnap humans and add them to their tribe, which does tie into the Outlander comics that you were referring to before. You know, he did a great job of kind of tying in what was already established in those comics, you know, into this story to kind of explain how they can communicate. So, but I'm with you, Jimmy. I kind of thought he, he definitely pushed the limits of what I wanted to see from that. Well, I think he pushed them, but he didn't go over the edge, which I was happy about. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, one of the rare occurrences in this novel where there was a tie in to previously existing star Wars expanded universe. You know, you, the, the dark horse comics with the, the mentions of, uh, of, uh, Sherrod Het and, uh, the fact that he did live amongst, these tribes of Tuscan Raiders and stuff. And, and they thought of him as being uh, sort of a wizard, a uh, air shaper, they would call him. And, uh, and, uh, 
and that's okay. That's all right. You know, I don't think that that that's a price of admission for reading this book. I, I think you can read the book and you know breeze through that stuff and and still get just as much out of it if you didn't know who that character was coming into it. Um, and that's what I really liked about this book is it it wasn't bogged down by pre-existing stories. It really does stand on its own. A lot of times Del Rey will say, this is a great place to, to get in <laughs> to Star Wars. You know, you don't have to know anything about happening in the books. And then you start reading a book and like you're through three chapters and they're bringing up all these characters that unless you have a real working knowledge of what's going on previously in Star Wars novels, you'd be lost. And uh, this is one book though, where they did say that, it's a good entry point, and uh, I strongly believe that. Yeah, I think any Star Wars fan could read this book and get everything out of it. Um, and then the other surprise that that uh, John Jackson Miller kind of threw in there for us is the fact that the character that was the leader of the Tusken Raiders, Ayark, was actually a female, and it was kind of an interesting twist. It totally caught me off guard. I didn't see it coming at all. And kind of felt silly that I missed it because, you know, obviously he never, they never referred to the character as a he or a she, which should have been a, a good tell, but it totally took me off guard. Did you guys, did that catch you guys off guard too, or did you kind of see it coming? It was a big twist because of, uh, you're, the only time you've seen Tuscan women is they're hanging out around the, that camp and uh, tending the children or what have you. you. You don't think about a woman being propelled into a, a um, an area of leadership amongst amongst a society that is so uncivilized, you know. I mean, that's a that's a progressive move to to have a, a woman in that sort of role, and we find out it's through necessity that it happened. Um, it was a great twist, and I, I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic twist. I, I was just you know like, oh my god, <laughs> did it catch it you off guard, Teresa? Yeah, no, it really, really did, and I think it's partially because the only time we ever see Tuscan Raiders, um, other than at the camp thing, is that they're always male. So even though they never mentioned a gender, I think we all just kind of assumed, okay, it's a, it's a guy, or maybe it's not even something that we thought about. It's just something that sort of, from our experience in Star Wars, sort of exists in our minds. You know, I don't think I actually thought whether or not it was a guy or a girl until they hit that moment, and I was just like, "Oh, okay <laughs> then." Yeah, and in, in at the beginning of the story, they kind of portrayed this character as the villain, where in the end, it really didn't turn out that Ayark was. Although, you know, the Tuscans were killing people, and they definitely were bad. You know, they weren't. I wouldn't say that we should look at them in any sort of a redeeming way, but in the end, the villain really turned out to be Orin, who was a character that, at least at the beginning, they it seemed like he was writing him to, to be a very likable character. And then as more things were revealed, we're kind of like, oh, this guy's kind of a jerk, kind of a creep, you know. And I thought it was interesting, you know, just to see the degradation of that character uh, to basically going from a very positive character at the beginning to basically being the villain at the end. Yeah, um, it, was, it was great character evolution for him. Um, yeah, you really want to like him when you meet him, and you think he's straight up. And he just became a victim of his own circle of lies, uh, the deceit. He couldn't run away from it. And, you know, essentially what <laughs> he was doing was developing a, something of a pyramid scheme out there in the desert where he was, 
you know, taking investors' money and, and not putting it where he said he was going to put it, but he was instead gambling and uh, getting into all sort of trouble with the, the crime lords and uh, just in an attempt to to build up these funds um, under the guise that he was doing it for everyone's protection. So he lost the trust of everyone who had placed it in him. And uh, as a reader, then you just, he becomes more and more despicable with each chapter that goes along. And, but yet you realize that he's trapped. He doesn't know what to do. He's desperate. And that came as a big surprise to me. His ultimate fate. <laughs> yeah. Was, I was going to get to that. Yeah. yeah. It was just a tremendous surprise and very satisfying. So did you feel anything for him, uh, Teresa? Did you feel bad for him at all? Did you find yourself feeling bad for him in the end, or did you think he kind of got what he deserved? Um, it's going to sound really harsh, but I kind of think he got what he deserved. And I really did like the evolution of the character, but I'm one of those types of readers that I do like really in-depth sort of complex characters, and it seems like we got a lot of that in this book. And so I was satisfied with the end. Yeah, I, th I mean, the fact that he went off the edge of that cliff with the speeder and then we assumed he died, I thought, okay, that's a fitting end for this character. But then when they reveal that he didn't die and he's basically trapped with the Tusken Raiders and he's going to live out his life in torture, I then at that point I felt bad for him. And, and you know what? He is a victim of karma. He is a victim of his own manipulation. And there is a very... Um, let's just say there's a, a, a parallel that connects Orn Galt with Anakin Skywalker. Yes, I was gonna, I was gonna yes. say that too. Yeah, it's there's definitely that. Uh, well, I'll go ahead and let you say it, Jimmy, since you brought well, it up. Well, you know, I mean, as a result of their their evil deeds, and and keep in mind that you know it's it's the the, the old saying, you know, the the path to hell is paved with good intention. And that's essentially what we saw with Anakin Skywalker. He was doing what he was doing because he believed that he could save his wife. And Oren was doing what he was doing because he believed he could save his friends and his neighbors and maintain their lifestyle and make life better for everyone. Same thing with Anakin Skywalker. But as a result of their manipulation, of their lies, of their deceit, of their, at times, um, misdirected intention. They lo both lost their freedom. They both became trapped within themselves. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> essentially, they both became wardens of their own prisons. And it was all because of their own actions. There's no one else to blame. And Obi-Wan... <laughs> Obi-Wan really needs to work on finishing the job, I think, because this is like the third time, you know, you got Darth Maul, you got Anakin, and now you have Oren. It's like he can't, he needs to go for the neck, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, that's all the reason why he needed to live by himself, because he is something that attracts trouble. I mean, let's just face it, Obi-Wan is the nexus of bad stuff in the galaxy. He really is. Yeah. He really is. The last thing I'll say, and then we'll wrap it up, but I thought the the one badass moment for Obi-Wan. I was glad that he got that moment because throughout the entire book, he doesn't really get to do much as far as action goes. But the fact that he took out a crate dragon single-handedly 
that entire scene, I was just like, this is awesome. Yeah, he gets his he gets his big moment, his big, you know, action scene. And that, to me, was satisfying enough. Yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed that scene, too. Just being able to see him be Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. Do you guys assume that that's the, uh, that's the source of the skeleton C-3PO walks by in the Dune Sea? <laughs> that would be <laughs> interesting. That would be really cool if it is. In my canon, it is. Right, yeah. So, yeah, but overall, I think it sounds like we all really like the book, um, you know, so we won't, won't have to go through really, like, any kind of final thoughts or anything. But just overall, I thought it was a great book and, you know, definitely would recommend it to anyone. Hopefully, if you've listened to this, you've already read it because we definitely spoiled things. But I think, I, I think you guys would agree that this was one of the better releases that Del Rey has had in a long time. Oh, no doubt about it. It kept me compelled and entertained the whole way through. Uh, I had a great time reading it this summer, and, uh, you know, it was a page-turner. I wanted to know what was going to happen next. I really grew to like all these new characters that were being introduced, and I enjoyed to get their perspective on what and who Obi-Wan Kenobi is, Ben Kenobi is. Um, I, I, I liked seeing that. I, I liked seeing a, a, a vulnerable Obi-Wan as well, um, one who's not so in control. After uh, the prequel films and then the, the Clone Wars series, we're, we're very accustomed to having an Obi-Wan Kenobi being totally in control, someone who is very much um, master of his fate and uh, someone who always seems to be five steps above and in front of everyone else. And here you're seeing him just, you know, dealing with livestock and uh, living in a crummy ramshackle hut with no door and you know, people are seeing him talking to himself and staring into the suns and everything. And, and it just is really cool to see a vulnerable Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because even by the time of A New Hope, you get the feeling that, wow, you know, he's very wise. Mm -hmm. He's he's very mystical. He's a wizard. He's, you know, we don't look at him as being crazy. But it's kind of funny to see how the normal people around him who've never been around a Jedi, who don't even know what a Jedi is, and uh, to see that, to see him acting in his strange ways as he tries to fly under the radar, it, it was just uh, is is very entertaining, and I I think a a real, just excellent springboard into this era then where he is living alone in the desert and becoming more accustomed to living out there, taking us to the Alec Guinness character we see in episode four. I thought it was very consistent with what, what kind of story and what kind of characterization of Ben Kenobi I, I wanted to see happening between the two trilogies. And even though it happens in a very brief amount of time, it's just you get that taste of what it was like for him when he first got out there before he knew his way around. Because by the time of episode four, heck, he knows his way around. He knows how to scare sand people. He knows what bar in Moss Eisley to go hang out in if he's looking for a pilot. That That is one thing that kind of <clears throat> disappointed me about the story was that he never did go into the Moss Eisley cantina. And you know that Ben Kenobi has a history in that place because he tells Luke right before they walk in, this place can be a little rough. And he is saying that from experience. He knows he's been involved in, in a few brawls in that place. Uh, and, and I thought for sure we would get uh, a visit. But uh, 
all the same, I, I'm 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 fine with that not being part of the book at all. I, I just thought it was a, a really fun book. Uh, never fell asleep once while reading it. You know, a lot of times with a, a book, uh, I'll be reading it, and you know, if it isn't really compelling to me and it isn't really grabbing me, it becomes sort of a chore to get through it. And uh, even even a good book from time to time, yeah. you know, it, it depends yeah. on how it's written. And it just seemed like this book really flowed and had a great rhythm to it and wanted you and you wanted to keep coming back for more so um that's probably the highest compliment i could pay definitely it actually makes me sort of interested about if they do end up doing a kenobi movie what the story is going to be about because now we have this story so does it continue after this or will it include some of this in it it's just kind of the Kenobi movie will blow my mind, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but hey, you never know. You never know. Once they get beyond the uh, episode 7, 8, and 9, they do their young Han Solo movie, their Boba Fett movie. Um, you know? We're going to have plenty might... of Star Wars coming up to, to wet our appetites. Looking for some uh, new ideas. And, yeah. Well, that Kenobi guy's kind of popular. Let's uh, <laughs> Let's give that a shot. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for coming on and talking to some Star Wars Expanded Universe with us. And as we end the show, is if you uh, do you have anything going on over at Rebel Force Radio that you want to plug? I know you were doing some uh, audiobook stuff maybe with uh, Del Rey or something like that. Oh, okay. Well, the project with Del Rey is uh, um, just uh, it, it's a promotional thing uh, when they release new novels, as they've done with Kenobi and then with Razor's Edge. Um, They've reached out to some Clone Wars actors to voice some excerpts. The first one, uh, the, the obvious choice to uh, have someone read a chapter from Kenobi would be uh, James Arnold Taylor. So they had him do that. And, um, and so I took his original recording and added some uh, John Williams music, uh, some Ben Burtt sound effects, and uh, fleshed it out a little bit. And uh, Del Rey enjoyed that a lot. Uh, Random House Audiobooks, they got a hold of me, and they said, hey, you know, we're going to be doing more of these. Uh, so we just released uh, an excerpt from Razor's Edge with Cat Tabor, and uh, Random House asked me to uh, enhance it, as I did with the uh, James Arnold Taylor excerpt. And uh, those are being released on Entertainment Weekly's website, EW.com, exclusively, and we have more planned in the future. So uh, this is uh, an exciting and fun project, and uh, and I, I really, really enjoy uh, working on it, so much so, uh, you know, we were talking about those uh, Brian Daly novels earlier. Uh, that's something I'd like to sink my teeth into, is possibly doing uh, the Brian Daly Han Solo trilogy as a complete audio book with the sound, with the music, and with um, perhaps a, a celebrity uh, reader, um, we don't have anything really, you know, concrete as far as that goes right now. But um, that's something I'd like to work on. I'd like to do more of these these sort of things, and you know, eventually do some complete audiobook productions. Um, if if they'll have me, I, I'd be happy to do it. So <clears throat> hopefully, uh, there'll be more of that stuff coming in the future. And of course, on Rebel Force Radio, we're cranking off the show every week we can be found on itunes just look for rebel force radio we release new shows every friday and uh just recently we uh we did do a, a special on this book kenobi featuring james arnold taylor audiobook narrator jonathan davis del rey editor air schernevice 
Steve Glosson from the Geek Out Loud show. And uh, gosh, what else have we had going on? We uh, celebrated Ashley Eckstein's birthday with a party a few weeks ago. Uh, been catching up with Steve Sansweet. Uh, you never know who's going to stop by. Uh, I imagine we'll be talking to Dave Filoni here in uh, the next few weeks about uh, Star Wars Rebels and uh, Clone Wars Season 5 on Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, we're just going to keep uh, keep it going for as long as we can because, uh, as we've always said, Star Wars is forever. And uh, we hope uh, our shows and shows like uh, Star Wars Bookworms, we hope uh, that you guys continue the trend, too. So um, lots of cool things happening in Star Wars. And uh, just can't wait to see what's around the corner next. Yeah. And we definitely appreciate you coming on the show. And for any of our listeners, please go check out Rebel Force Radio. It's definitely um, a favorite podcast for me and Aaron. We both listen to it, I think, every week. So. Yep. On our next episode, we're going to be reviewing the comic volumes of Dawn of the Jedi Volume 2, The Prisoner of Bogan, and Star Wars Volume 1, In the Shadow of Yavin. So start reading them now so you can listen to our next episode. You can find us on Twitter at SWBookworms. Also, we welcome emails. We didn't do one this time, but we have been doing some email um, feedback from our listeners. So send us an email. It's StarWarsBookworms at gmail.com. And again, we also ask you go over to iTunes, leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing, anything you want to hear about, you can send to us via email. If you want to find me, I'm at IceColdPenguin on Twitter, and Aaron? I'm at AVGoins. And as always, may the Force be with you. <laughs>